Welcome to episode number 51 of the Grab Blogger podcast. We're helping academics change the world through online business. We're helping you, the listener, by giving you the tools, the tips, the strategies, and the information you need to create an online business around your research experience, around your expertise, and around the change that you want to see in the world. We are back now with Ava Ampson in part two of this podcast series, and we're talking about SciComm for researchers. Ava, welcome back to the Grab Blogger podcast. Thank you. So as I mentioned in the last episode, Ava is a UK-based science writer and communicator. She did a PhD in biochemistry at the University of Toronto, spent over a decade working in science communication roles for academic publishers and research groups. She's now transitioned to full-time freelance writing for a variety of groups across the internet, including some ones you may know of, like uh, Forbes <laughs> and, and some other groups. So some pretty big names there. In the previous episode, we were talking about creating a, a SciComm career as an academic and what that can look like. They're giving some strategies for overcoming the difficulties you might come up against in doing that um, and some tips for moving into freelance as well. So if you're listening to this as your, your first episode of the Grab Blogger podcast, I encourage you to go back to episode 50 and, and take a listen to that. Um, find a lot of great information there. And today we're going to be talking through this SciComm for researchers. We're going to talk about what made Ava transition the, the focus of her work or at least add on to a, a new focus. We're going to talk about how the science communication landscape has changed for researchers, uh, what kind of models maybe don't apply anymore in this space, and what role having a website and understanding online practices have in this. I think we're going to get into a discussion on audiences as well. So I appreciate Ava spending her time to come back on the podcast. And I think a great place to start in is I read some of your background on easternblot.net, um, the last post you had as of uh, right now, which is February 2020 talking about your transitioning over to share your side and what you're transitioning over. Maybe just for the listeners, can you just share what, you know, what that transition is and, and why? Yeah. So I started the um, Eastern Block blog. It, it, it had a couple names in the early days, but I think I registered a domain 2002, 2003. And I had this very general non-science focused blog for my friends um, since 2003. Then I gradually changed that into a more sciencey blog where I was basically doing a bit of, you know, science explaining this is how that works, but also here is a cool picture of a science illustration or here is a fun science website. Look at that. So I've had that for a very long time. And then in, 2007, I was invited to write for Nature Network on the um, Nature website. They had a blogger network for a couple of years. And I had a, a place to write there from 2007 to 2012 when they folded and converted it to a whole new site. When I was there, I initially wanted to write the same kind of content, but they had some guidelines. You know, it has to be about science and it, yeah, it, it had to be, it can't just be a few lines. So I had to write a bit more in depth. And I started realizing that I wrote predominantly for the people who left comments. That was back when people still left comments on blogs. And I kind of got to know that community and they were mostly other scientists, other science bloggers and science writers. And I kind of had that community in my head when I wrote on Nature Network. When they closed the site, I merged the two blogs. So I took all of that content back on Eastern Blot. So now I had this website with all these different bits of content. So it got very confusing and I got a little bit of an identity crisis of what is this website and what am I doing with it? 
So um, a few years ago, I think I started maybe 2017, I started really doing some systematic research into what is blogging in like in this era because I've been doing it for almost 15 years at that point and things change on the internet. So I learned how to um, like figure out which search terms people have used to get on your site. Um, I figured out what my most popular posts were and when they were popular. Um, the most popular one is debunking this animated GIF of a, a supposedly the happiness molecule, but that's not at all what it is. So I have a blog post about what it actually is. And every time that picture goes viral on social media, someone will post a link to my blog post and be like, actually, this is what it is. And then I see this big spike in visitors. So I had, I knew I had that audience of people who are just kind of interested in, in learning about science and looking at science pictures online and love those kind of fun facts. But I also had the whole audience that I had when I was writing for Nature Network, which were mostly other scientists and science communicators. And I had a lot of content that was very much, we, we used to call this blogging about blogging. And back when the science communication, um, the science blogging community was still a thing. And I talked about that last week. We, we tended, people tended to get very introspective and think about why are we blogging? What is this? Who is this for? And I had, everyone had all these blog posts that were a blogging about blogging. So I had a lot of those. And then I also had, you know, whenever I found some fun science communication things, I would share them with people. And then I had in mind people like me who were interested in science communication. But those are not the same people as the people who find my my post debunking this, this internet viral picture. So it got very confusing. And I, I in my research, I figured out, oh, I need to be thinking about my audience. And then I realized I don't even know who my audience is anymore. So I started um, creating these different categories and thought, well, if you're interested in this, you click on the science communication category and that's what you get. But it was still all on one website. And then last year, um, when I first went freelance, the first thing I did, because I had like about six weeks of redundancy pay, so for my previous job, I knew I didn't really have to worry about money and I could just build things up. The first thing I did was set up a whole new website just for the science communication audience. So um, the, the people that I was trying to reach with those blogging about blogging or this is what science communication is about in 2017, that could all be on one place. I haven't moved it all over yet um, because I created this whole new um, style for the CRUSI website with posts that I wanted them to be kind of short, which I know is not good for SEO. So I also have some that are longer, but I wanted them to be... Um, I wanted there to be specific guidelines for every post so that I would be consistent, but also so that it would be easier to have guest writers on and make sure that they also stuck to the same style. So I've had a couple of people write posts for the site. Anyone who wants to can get in touch. I'm always looking for more people. And I can just send them the guidelines and it will be very clear. It says this category um, will be, this is the word length. This is what you're trying to do with it. So yeah, I started this from scratch in a very systematic way. And that kind of gave Eastern Blot its identity back as this is more about the science writing itself. But then I was offered a spot um, as a contributor for Forbes. And 
I write most of my um, straight up science articles for them. So I didn't really have time for Eastern blot. And I, I think that's just kind of resting right now. I mean, it's not going anywhere. I'm still paying for the hosting and it's the whole archive is there. And every time that one image goes viral, I get a ton of visitors still, but I'm not putting that much on there at the moment. So share your size where all the new stuff goes. It's marinating, easternblot.net. It's getting <laughs> yeah. better with age. Um, and I wouldn't take that down. I mean, no, no. Yeah, you, you're probably understanding, but I would, if anything, redesign that to point to where you want your audience. It's almost that say, it could be that segmentation gateway. We're going to back up from the tech in a moment, but it could be the segmentation gateway to send people off to those places instead of having the content there, but to send them to share your site or wherever. Don't delete that site. It's got too long of a history. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I did at one point, um, also that same period where I was kind of reflecting on what is this site. I cut a lot of the really old posts because they were way too short. So I started in 2003 when blogs looked like how Twitter looks now. So <laughs> I had posts that were just one or two sentences, uh, no links, no pictures. And I got rid of all of that unless it was really good or linked to something very important. But most of the links were dead anyway. So, <laughs> Yeah, and the, the reason I say that is the one thing you can't really buy in this space, actually you can, but one thing you can't really buy or for SEO value is, is the time. So if you have a site that's been up for 10 years, you can buy a site that's been up for 10 years and transition it. So maybe you can buy it, but that's the hardest thing to do. Like I'm trying to outrank sites that are, not very good in my space, but they've been there for a long time. Um, and uh, it's very difficult. So I'm considering, okay, well, maybe this isn't my grab blogger space. This is my dust safety science space. Maybe I might just look at, at buying those websites at the end of the day. Um, but that's, uh, that's yeah, probably more complex than what we're, what we're aiming to achieve in this episode. But I wanted to highlight three things you said in your, in your discussion there. I'm just numbering them now. So the first one is blogging about blogging, which is kind of, which is kind of fun. It's sort of like making money online, talking about making money online, <laughs> which maybe I could be accused of with Gravlogger, but I'm actually doing it. My full-time business is dust safety science. So I feel like uh, we're actually helping people move the needle on that. Number two, and the one I think we'll dive into a bit is this audience. Um, in, and in your guidebook, PsyCon for Researchers, um, there's a whole section on knowing your audience. And I, I think it's really important. Um, the third one you mentioned is that segmentation piece and in the identity crisis. You know, if somebody land on your site and if they're, if you're type, if you're person A, then go here. If you're person B, and that works if your audience is the same audience and they have different problems, you could segment them that way. But if they're different audiences, different people, <laughs> then, then it's maybe not a good idea to segment them that way. And that's probably what you're seeing now. Yeah. It, uh, it got, it just got too confusing to have everything on one site. So <laughs> on the audience part. So yeah, I want to dig into this a bit because I read through your, your, most recent guidebook. Um, and you find the guidebooks at shareyourside.com slash workbooks. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And I read through this section on your audience. And it really hit me because that was my almost epiphany was when I was starting my business is who is my audience? And I was reading a lot of Psycom stuff and I realized that my audience wasn't the traditional Psycom audience. And we'll get into that, but maybe I'll let you introduce this topic a bit. What, what should people be thinking about when they're trying to figure who is the audience for their content that they're putting out? 
Yeah, so I, this is the first chapter in the workbook for a reason, because it is the first thing that you need to think about and also the first thing that everyone seems to forget. And I also had that epiphany, like trying to figure out who my audience was. And it's something that researchers who do science communication don't really learn to think about unless they're being told it explicitly, because... Um, if you start out in research, your audience is pretty well defined. So you start out as a student, your audience is other students. And like you go to a conference, you know that the people you're talking to are also in your field. So you never really have to think about it. You just think about things that you would be in, talk about things that you would be interested in. And you know that your audience is also interested in it because they're the same. But then in doing, um, starting to do science communication or various outreach or engagement activities, suddenly it becomes important. And usually what, the way that it gets introduced to people, they never specifically say, think about your audience, but they'll say, well, you're going to give a talk in a pub so the people there don't know much about science, so leave out the jargon, something like that. And then they start thinking, oh, I need to um, get rid of the difficult words and then I'm fine. But that's not all it is. Like your, your audience in that pub chose to come to a science talk. So you're now talking to a specific subset of people who are old enough to be in a pub and chose to be there to listen to you talk. That is yet a different audience than if you are going um, in a school class uh, as an invited speaker where you're suddenly speaking to 30 kids who, of, of which maybe only one has an active interest in science and the rest doesn't really want anything to do with it. So you, have to, you, you can't get away there with just, oh, I'm going to leave out the jargon because they don't understand it. You have to actually talk a bit more about who you are and get them to, to get away way from the day, not necessarily knowing more science, but thinking, oh, so that's a scientist. Now I've met a scientist and I maybe want to think about doing that or maybe not, you know, just give them a di completely different message. And that kind of thinking, it's always comes down to thinking about your audience and people teach it as, you know, teach, teach the message, teach, okay, you're going into a school class. So you talk like this, or you're going to this event. So you talk like this it always comes down to adapting to the audience and knowing the audience. So that's just, yeah, that's key. <laughs> so, and yeah, I'm going to add to that, the segmentation, if we're going to keep using that word through this episode, which I guess we're going to, because this is live recording and I've already used it a couple of times. Um, <laughs> but the segmentation I came up with that I, that really was a fundamental shift for me was, so I, you hear, you know, B2B and B2P kind of marketing, I call it R to R, so that's researcher to researcher, R to P, that's researcher to public, and then R to B, which is where I am, but I didn't realize it for a while. So I was reading a lot of material on SciComm, and that would generally, and you're you're the expert on SciComm, not me, so anything that I'm saying is just my thoughts, but I would say that's generally kind of where, where the realm of SciComm lands in people's minds is communicating science to the public as a, as a scientist. There's R to R, and I think that's kind of what you're calling, calling blogging about blogging. <laughs> yeah, blogging to other scientists. And yeah, I do, I do some of that now where I help researchers um, kind of write about their work for researchers in different fields. Because again, they're not the experts, but they're not completely unfamiliar with, like they can be a bit more um, like the regular scientific style. They can handle passive voice, for example, but they don't know what all these abbreviations mean. So They're, they don't get upset when there's a semicolon in the wrong, <laughs> used in the slightly wrong context. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And then, yeah, the fourth, the third category they have is R to B, researcher to business. And I really want to bring this up because I think that's a, a powerful underutilized model for making big change. So, and I'm not saying the other ones aren't aren't important because they are. They are. It's very important for the public to understand and make decisions. And we're going to talk about some of the the model shifts over time. And in my opinion, it's very important for researchers as well. But the way that for dust safety science works is I'm trying to impact businesses to do safer work practices so that their employees can go home at the end of the day with all their fingers for lack of a lack of a less graphic description, right? Or, or worse. And it's, it's a different mindset. It's a different frame when you're talking to businesses as a, as a researcher, I think you'd probably move into being called a subject matter expert more in this space. And it's also a, a viable business opportunity if you're willing to put yourself out there and become that expert. There's all kinds of, and we talk about Grab Blogger all the time about the trials and tribulations I've had in my my career there. But I just want to highlight this audience segmentation part. There are different groups and you can go different ways with your blogging. I also just found something today. And now, of course, I didn't write down what it's actually called, but people... I don't even think it's open to just Europeans, but the um, European Commission has a page on their website where they're specifically asking scientists to leave their details if they want to be considered as one of those subject matter experts. So they they really want input from researchers. It, it doesn't explicitly say that the researchers have to be European. I think they're more interested in in getting a like a good spread of topic areas but yeah that's the kind of thing that I tend to forget about so I do a lot of R to P and R to R communication and the SciComm for Researchers workbook the first draft went to a couple of readers um, to make sure I didn't forget anything just to look at the big picture and one of them who um, has a lot of industry experience did actually say like you kind of forgot about that researchers and business interaction or even researchers and doctors. So I did add a few examples in here and there. I think in one of the worksheets, there are a couple of um, mock scenarios to think about. And I think one of them was more that kind. Now I, I added something in, but I think you can very much tell that most of my experience is either researchers to public or researchers to researchers. So yeah, I, it's it's the part that I always forget about as well. So. The reason that I care so much about it, so R R to B is my my business. That's but the reason I care so much about trying to understand R to R and R to P is that I think there's this, and maybe this is the academic in me. There's this basis of knowledge that we built up over the last decade or two in SciComm and how to effectively communicate it. That then, if you jump into the world of R to B, where I jumped in, it's like I'm rewriting the wheel as I go, and and it's it's hard. It's hard to communicate effectively. It's hard to make change. Um, it's hard for a lot of reasons. And I'm almost thinking, oh, we've already done this over here. If I could just translate some of that knowledge. That's why we're inviting more Stockholm writers on the podcast so I can get to understand this space a little bit more and so that others can as well. And then how can you use that to 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 make change in the world, in your industry and and yeah, with what you want to do? So for, you mentioned funding has sort of shifted. And I want to talk about this a bit about how the landscape has changed now. It's not like when you're doing a funding application, sometimes there's a box that says, did you do or science outreach? Like, how has that changed today and how is that impacting academics online? So some of the research funders, and I, I can't name names because I'm, I 
kind of forget who they are. And also, I know one of them recently got rid of this requirement. Um, the academics revolted. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, it, well, it was basically just the guidelines were too strict, but so no one could really meet them. But they kind of want you to show that as a researcher, that even if you're doing basic like blue sky research that there is some sort of final application and that you're talking about that and that you're um, sharing why your work is important because why why should they fund it if it's just your fun project right you kind of have to prove that it's important and that people are interested in it so um, they are a lot of funders are now encouraging some level of communication um, and that can, that can be done in so many different ways. I know researchers who have podcasts or who are writing or who just do a lot of um, media appearances. So um, there are two, um, I, I do some science journalism. I don't like to call myself a science journalist I, because so much of what I do is not reporting, is more you know, longer stories. But I do often need a scientist source to, to ask a question and... There are two websites that a lot of journalists use to look for sources, especially to increase the diversity of voices so that you're not just always talking to the same people over and over. And they're both for uh, minority researchers. So one is a women in science. It's called 500 Women Scientists. And they have a database where you can filter out um, who wants to be interviewed by a journalist if that ever is available. Um, the other website is, um, I think it's called, it's diversesources.org. And that diversity is really, really broad in, in that um, context. So it's basically a list of researchers who say, well, if, you, if you're a journalist and you need to talk to a scientist, come find me here. And it's not guaranteed that a journalist will be in touch because that very much depends on what you're working on and what kind of experts they need. Um, but I have used um, these websites to look for people when I, I need to just, often I just need to know, need to talk to someone who knows a bit more about a certain topic. And the alternative to doing this is to looking at what people have previously written and who their sources were, or going to um, universities one by one, like each university's media department and say, do you know someone who can talk about this? And that's quite tedious. But stepping forward in, in that sense is another way that a lot of researchers are um, getting their science communication in and just making sure that they're available to journalists and working with their um, institutional media departments. Yeah, I love that. And the 500 women scientists, was that 500 or? Yes, I think so. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, I think it's 500. Google, it'll probably come up both ways. <laughs> um, Google's pretty good like that. And it's it's way more than five hundred, by the way. They um, it's 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 a misleading name. There's more than five hundred in there. Yeah, it should be a yeah a really big number of or something. Yeah, <laughs> that changes every time. Yeah. <laughs> so we have talked a bit about the landscape. We talked a bit about the audience. What models of SciComm are sort of outdated nowadays, and where are things heading in a in a broader sense? So I, I, I believe they didn't call it this at the time, but the deficit model is kind of, I've only ever heard the word in a negative context. That's why I think it wasn't really used that way. I learned about this a few years ago, and it's basically the idea that 
we can solve all the problems if people just understood more science. Only a scientist would say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's definitely something that comes from scientists thinking, oh, you know, I just need to share information with people. And when I first started science blogging, uh, that was definitely kind of the vibe that a lot of these blogs had. There were a lot of blogs out there that were specifically pro um, teaching people how evolution works because, you know, people believe in different things and you can't be a creationist and here is the actual science that's going to change your mind. And of course, some people's minds have changed from reading the science, but a lot of people aren't creationists because they haven't seen enough science about it. And it's at the moment, climate science is a big issue. And the same thing is happening. People think, oh, we just need to show them more science, more science. That's, and that's not working because it's not a lack of access to science. It's 2020. Anyone can Google things and find the research. It's just, it has to do, so that deficit model clearly isn't working. Just teaching people more science isn't changing their minds. So a lot of um, science communication at the moment is focused on um, just, again, audience, connecting with the audience and trying to understand where they're coming from, giving people space to ask questions rather than just throwing a bunch of information at them understanding um, cultural differences um, that might you know, make a difference in how people interpret things. Um, I've got a, a fun example, which when I had to think about like, what would be a cultural difference that I could, like a lot of people could relate to. If you're, imagine that you're a researcher working on um, pet health, so cats, and you've discovered that if cats go outside, they maybe need less exercise indoors and a different kind of food. Now, if you're talking about that research in North America versus talking about that research in Europe, you're going to get a completely different audience because in Europe, it is the norm to let cats outside. And people think it's weird if your cat never goes outside because, oh no, that poor cat. In North America, it's the norm to keep your cats inside and people who leave their cats outside or even let them out for a short amount of time, they get you know, criticized for putting the cat in danger, putting the bird population in danger. And I, I've, to, I, I've got to the point, I have a cat and I am in the UK, so my cat goes outside a few hours per day and I don't talk about that on Twitter. I know, I, I talk, there's pictures of the cat outside on Instagram. <laughs> But I know that the Instagram community is, there's more space for reasonable conversations there. On Twitter, things go so fast and people just have these snap decisions and opinions. I am not going to mention on Twitter if my cat is outside, which, I mean, it, it's also not a very interesting tweet. But I've had to stop myself where I, I wanted to mention it in a context. And I thought, oh, no, no, I can't say that. I can't say the cat is in the garden, you know. <laughs> it's, and that is the kind of, you know, thinking about the audience and knowing cultural differences and just giving someone a piece of information like the cat is outside, <laughs> which is super basic, um, can have a completely different impact on these different groups. Now, if that already has such a different impact, think about things like, um, climate research or vaccine research or antibiotic resistance and the uh, vaccines in particular, you're dealing with parents, parents who are scared, worried about their children. 
And yes, they're very misled by, I don't know, a, a group online that said they shouldn't vaccinate their kids. But if a strange scientist suddenly comes in and says, here are all the facts why you should vaccinate your kid, that's not going to convince someone if their friends who know them and their kids say that, you know, you should not. And um, so it's not just about the facts. They have access to the facts. There's all these other things going on. So now in, in terms of science communication, it would be more about why are they scared and who could go and talk to them? Because maybe a scientist isn't the right person. Maybe we need another parent to go talk to them and find a parent who is a scientist or find a parent who has autism and is talking about this. And that might help. So, <laughs> yeah, so it's more thinking about the people and the process rather than just facts. I'm drawing out a big diagram here in my notes. And normally I'll take bullet point notes, but this conversation <laughs> has me has my wheels spinning a bit. So I'll, I'll, I'll mention what I'm thinking here. So I just wrote deficit model and we're really moving towards what I'd call engagement. So actually building a community, having the direction of information flow the other way. So what questions do you have? Let's answer them. Kind of ask me anything mentality, keeping in mind the cultural, like that people are going to perceive the information differently. And the, the part that's sort of new in my mind, but I'll, I'll mention it here because I sometimes like to talk about what uh, what's coming up and bubbling up to the surface, but on online marketing, we're actually moving in the same direction. So if you think a deficit model as really hard deadlines and yellow highlights and red texts and buy this now and um, spammy pop-ups and we'll let you go through, like that's the deficit model. That's if you don't do this now, your life's going to suck or, you know, and, and online marketing really has shifted over the last, even the last 12 months to more engagement. Okay, well, what is your problems? How do we can help? How can we move you from step A to step B? Yeah, and it's tailored to the audience much better than it used to be, yeah. Exactly. And I mean, there's all kinds of tech and background and stuff in there, how to do that. But I mean, that's where the world's kind of moving. Um, and the reason I asked Ava about the deficit model is that at Dust Safety Science for my audience, which would be people working in industries handling combustible dust. If you go look at my other website or, or have listened on the podcast, you know I run a website about dust explosions. Uh, fire and explosions and industries handling combustible powders. Traditionally, we've done a lot of the deficit model. It's if we could just explain to them that it's dangerous, then <laughs> then they would stop doing. You know, they would take safer precautions and have better work procedures. And I'm realizing that that deficit model is not working there either. And we've actually moved more towards an engagement model where we're building out a community and having um, a place where people, like a help desk, where people can actually ask questions that they have. And if they're scared about you know, if they're health safety manager and they're worried about the health of their 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 workers, they can come in, and it's more of a an, if you want to use marketing terms, more of inbound marketing, but more of um, moving from the steps of model to this engagement model, which I'm seeing now in, in science communication moving as well. So, I, this this conversation I thought was really quite interesting from my perspective on that. And yeah, just online marketing. So if you're starting a website and a blog today, because a lot of scientists do this, they start with like just shouting the research basically um and and it's not going to have as much legs as much traction as you if if you think about engagement so how do i write an effective newsletter that people read every week because they enjoy and i'm answering their questions and they're asking me questions so you really want to up your online game then moving into this engagement space instead of just you know filling all the deficits with information would be something i'd encourage any thoughts come up for you on on that i know that's a little bit off topic, but it's where my, my mind's at these days. 
No, well, I mean, I need to uh, market my workbook at the moment and I'm trying to remember what I did two years ago with the previous workbook and what I haven't done yet. And one of the things, so I noticed that the, the, the sales of this one have been more gradual than the first one, if you look at the time period where it's been up. And then I realized that the big thing that I didn't yet do um, is to go into specific mailing lists and Facebook groups. I've done one mailing list so far, um, but just go to the audience that I know is going to be interested in this. Um, so I've done the general ads online. I've targeted them to like the right interests and things like that. I've put it out of my own mailing list and on my own channels. And that is that that's been that gradual growth, but I've, and not really done the going to the audience, sending out emails to departments that I know are interested in this and things like that. So that's, uh, yeah, it's again, it's all about audience. <laughs> it keeps coming back. Yeah, I mean, you did some things, right? You had, you had a re-engagement email. That's how I found it. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I emailed um, everyone who got the previous workbook because it wasn't just a new workbook. I also did some updates on the old one. There was uh, one or two dead links in there that I wanted to get rid of and a fixed typo. It was just small changes, but I thought, you know, I'd better update the old one as well as get the new one out. Well, I'll tell you, it, it, so, and you probably didn't have a marketing plan, but since this is a marketing podcast, I'll, I'll discuss the marketing angle of it. When I read the email, I read it probably four times and I, I read it a couple extra times because I knew I was going to interview but when I first read it, I didn't even realize he had a new ebook out. I read the yeah, updates to the old ebook and I said, like, oh, this is cool. I want to see what updates have it made because I really like the first one. And then I went back to read the email again later to get the updates. And I was like, oh, there's another ebook. Okay, well, that's interesting. So it's if if you just had sent an email to have another ebook, I probably wouldn't even have, from a marketing perspective, blinked. <laughs> but it was because I had these updates. I was like, oh, what are these updates about? Yeah, and it was specifically targeted to the people who got the previous workbooks. So, I mean, finding a hungry audience. So if you want to sell hot dogs you can have a choice you can you know go stand in the middle of the, the highway and try to sell hot dogs or you can go wait outside your local pub at 2 a.m in the morning you're probably gonna sell more hot dogs outside the local pub <laughs> so you need to find the people that are hungry so that's a you know a good thing to do and it's an interesting realization anything else on on this ebook on the marketing side of getting it out that you found that's worked so far and it's it's a it's a five dollar ebook so it's not a huge monetary outlay yeah i've i've got a couple things so I'm I've, I wanted to just get it out and I'm still in the like the slow marketing phase at the moment one of the things that has been really useful last time is just talking to um so the last one was I think in that sense a bit easier to market because it was from science to psych and was specifically aimed at um, PhD students and postdocs so I talked to people who were doing, um, who were working in graduate departments like grad coordinator and who were involved with getting their students ready for their career because it's kind of a career book. And SciComm for researchers is for researchers in all different stages of their career that is kind of assuming that they are staying researchers. So there isn't really that central point for them. There's, not, there's nobody that you go to for help on how do I continue to be a researcher. But I will go back to some of those um, people in coordinating roles and just let them know that this is there because I know that they do often also provide general science communication advice. And I've got a couple of um, workshops that are tailored to different sections of the workbook that I also like, want to contact them about anyway. So that's kind of an, an ongoing slow process. 
and yeah i think that the the, the online engagements is is always good so i am um, i'm going to ramp that up a little bit more as well and get into more of the groups and let people know that this is out there i just hate um I, i'm fine with marketing other people's stuff but i hate uh, marketing my own stuff because it feels like I'm showing off my work and what I did, but it's part of it. It's part of the job. So that's, yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny because we came, we, we weren't actually going to talk about marketing the ebook when we, when we kind of outlined this press or I wasn't planning on it, but we came right back to where I had some notes here. Um, I was talking about in, in my notes that I put were about the audience and talking to them that I was working towards and this imposter syndrome and imposter syndrome is a totally overused word but it's true is the problem. So, so I'll continue to use it. Um, and a book for me that I, I listened to was called Leap First by Seth Godin. It was actually only an audio book, but it's overcoming this instinctual resistance to um, risk and change and, and finding the courage to share your work with vulnerability and generosity and, and actually getting people results. It's the same thing. You're gonna, if you put something, create something, put it into the world, there's always going to be that fear of sharing your own work. It's, it's always easier to share somebody else's work, but it's important it's an important muscle to exercise because if you don't, then you're not going to be able to be successful in those, you know, sharing that out. So I think this is a good for people that are creating in the space. I think this is a really good discussion and they're probably thinking, well, how can I market my workbook and, and you given some tips on that. So I appreciate that. I was going to say, so in the SciComp for researchers, so if I'm a researcher today um, and I want to share my science, what role does having a, a website and online presence have in that in today's environment? Yeah, so it's it used to be that scientists would start a website only because they wanted to start a blog, and that was kind of the only reason. Um, but it's just really important to be findable, and a lot of university websites don't allow you to put too much of your own things in there. So if you're just going with that little space that your university gives you where you can write one paragraph of text and have one photo, that might not always be sufficient and setting up your own website, even if it's on like a, a platform that does all the design for you, um, lets you drag and drop your pictures um, or, or even if it's a WordPress blog, something that's quite simple to set up, um, that will already give you so much more um, freedom and like you can show pictures of your work, you can show videos um, of any like field work excursions that you've been on, um, talks that you've given, and it just makes it easier for people to find. Um, I Google a lot of scientists like multiple times per day because I either need to fact check that their email address is accurate or I need to find an expert in something. And if you look at the things that come up in the top of Google, it's Yes, the university website is one of them, but um, LinkedIn pages are really highly ranked, even Facebook pages, uh, Twitter profiles. And the difference between like Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn versus your university site is that you can update it at any time. So you don't even need to like have your own website as long as you have something that you can update and um, where you make sure that... Um, your latest interests are on theirs. I, I always go to people's Twitter's account because uh, Twitter accounts, because that's the easiest way to see um, what's going on at the moment. Sometimes they, their accounts that they haven't used in four years, fine, then I go look somewhere else. But if they're up to date on Twitter, 
it's the first place where I can really see like, oh, that's what they're interested in. So the pinned tweet is their latest paper or the, the big cover image is a picture from, from their research. And they're talking about things and talking to their colleagues. And yeah, that's just a really, you know, you have control over it and you're easily findable by people searching for experts. So I totally encourage people to start their own website independent of their supervisor or their university. And the reason is that it's much more flexible and you're going to be able to do a lot more things with it down the road. So the question, I, the automatic question response to that is, well, how do I go about doing that as the university, you know, is the university going to say it's not okay? And, and do you have any, you have any thoughts on, on that for people that you can share? Um, so one of the things that universities might want to try to control is if you are representing them. So if you're going on Twitter and you say, I'm a Harvard researcher, and that's kind of your whole identity on there, then Harvard might say, okay, then if you say that, then we want you to do certain things. I actually don't believe Harvard is one of the places that's controls it which is why I feel kind of safe naming them um, but there are universities that do want to control like they want to they want you to tag the university in your tweets or want you to have um, something in your profile that specifically states um, that those are your own words and that the university is not responsible and every place is different and some of these social media policies are quite strange in that regard so um, that's that is something to check in general, they don't really mind if you have, if you set up your own website, because I think universities know how crappy their own websites are. Um, they're often rarely updated. They say, here, your, here's your, your space for your profile. And then they don't put anything on there for a year. And if you're a postdoc on a two-year contract, that means that there's just nothing to show where you work for the first year in your job. So yeah, I think they're fine with you going out and just presenting yourself as who you are. Yeah. And I think you probably do have to be careful in terms of knowing the rules that the university has, but I encourage you, say if there's a rule about not posting images from your lab on your own personal blog, which maybe there is, I could see that being a potential rule. It's so important in my mind that you build on your own land, so to see, so to say you have control of what you have, that if those are rules that can't be bent, then that just means you're not going to be able to post pictures from your lab. Don't say, okay, well, if I go on the university website, then I'll be able to post the pictures from my lab. Because I, the the biggest thing I want people that are listening to this podcast to know is that you need to control that because it can, if you want to go freelance later, if you want to do all these, you know, if you want to build your own business, you're, you're going to need to own that that space. I mean, my journey is I literally started my com. I went in and talked to my supervisor. I did tell my supervisor and I said, Hey, supervisor. <laughs> uh, I started a website just talking about my research. I'm not talking specifically about the findings of my research, but more about if you went to a textbook and opened it and saw like the science topics, I'm, I'm writing about those kind of topics. So if you go to the biggest text in my field, open it up just so that people can see what they're, what this space is all about. And you know, that was the genesis of now a business that runs online training and I have research partners around the world. And But if I had done that on and I'm not going to name my university, but everybody knows who it is listed the podcast for. But if I had called it, you know, um, university, that name, student.com's research or something or done on their site, I wouldn't have been able to build my business today. So know what the rules are, but don't let them stop you from building on your own land. 
Yeah, and I think that that reminds me of like two quick other things. So one is um, some researchers are worried that, that they cannot talk about anything related to their research online because a journal might say, we can't publish this, you tweeted about it. It's, it's not that strict. You can say what you're working on, just don't put the figures and the results directly online. Um, that is what they mean when they say we can't publish previously published results. Um, but you can say, okay, I'm working on studying this pathway. And you can even, um, a lot of conferences even make the abstracts public. So if, if it's in a public abstract, you can tweet about it. The other thing is that I noticed that a lot of researchers uh, built their identity on being a researcher in that field and then move on to another institute or another field or another job and are now kind of struggling if they want to continue to do this online communication because now they, they don't have that identity anymore. So I never started my um, online blogging journey as this is the blog of a PhD student in biochemistry. It's in there because the whole Eastern blog is a biochemistry joke, but I never specifically said, this is why you should trust me and I'm only blogging about biochemistry. I had this very broad um, scientific area that I covered. I wrote about anything related to science and it's more life sciences than other sciences just because that's what I knew more about. But it meant that when I left research and I got um, jobs for working for publishers, I didn't suddenly have to change everything because it didn't really affect my websites. And I have seen other people struggle with this where they start out by saying, this is the blog of a PhD student. And I can like, even whenever I see such a blog, I, I try to think about, okay, I must remember to go back in a few years to see what happens. And at the times where I remember it, the blog I either got a completely new name because they're no longer a PhD student or they just stopped blogging or they started a whole new page somewhere else. So yeah, um, be careful how you define yourself. You're not, uh, research jobs are not usually not permanent. They're for a few years. So don't build your whole identity around it. Yeah. I mean, don't call your blog lifestyles of a 23 year old man. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually you're not going to be a 23 year old man anymore. So, you know, it's, I, don't, I, I just wrote down, avoid making it time sensitive in, in the broadest term, um, or even maybe even topic sensitive. Although I like, I, I don't mind making it um, topic sensitive if you're planning on staying in that topic. I mean, my dust explosion blog is, that's pretty specific. <laughs> you don't get much more specific than, than dust explosions. Um, so that's a really cool discussion. I, I took a bunch of notes there about things that people can consider if they're starting their own website as a researcher to have it in their own possession, but things they may need to consider um, to, to make that happen and things that they should put in there. So I, I really appreciate that. Um, I think we'll close off this episode by just what what's next for, for Ava and what's next for shareyourside.com. What's coming down the pipeline? Um, so, well, I'm con continuing freelance writing. Um, for Share Your Side, I am hoping to get some... Um, more in-person events. So I've been hosting a few co-working mornings in London, but I'm trying to get some workshops out there this year. It's one of my goals for this year is to give a few workshops. Um, it's just such a hassle to <laughs> plan and get out that I haven't gone around to it, but that's, that's the big goal. And yeah, just continue to put content on the site and provide useful information for researchers who want to learn about science communication. And those workshops are for 
researchers I want to researchers. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Well, if somebody wants to find out more about that or find out more about you, where's the best spot for them to, to do that? So for the science communication, it's shareyoursci.com. And for uh, that and the rest of my work, it's avaanson.com. Yeah. And that's shareyoursci and sci is S-C-I.com. <laughs> um, and if you go to shareyoursci.com slash workbooks with an S, is that right, Ava? Yes. Yeah, there's two. So <laughs> workbooks <laughs> with an S. Then you can get the the workbook we talked about in the last episode, grabblogger.com slash 50. Um, and then the SciCom for researchers we talked about this episode as well. So I want to say thank you again for coming on the podcast, Ava. It's been a, a pleasure. And I don't think it's going to be too long before we have you on for the the the, the three-peat for the podcast because you're just a wealth of knowledge in the space. And I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to share your knowledge with the community. Well, thanks for having me on. It's been fun. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm sure we'll be talking again soon then. Bye. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Dr. Ava Ampson. We've been talking about SciComm for researchers. We talked about why Ava changed the or added to the focus of her, her current blogging efforts. She's had, I think in the last episode, we, we said over a, a dozen blogs um, in her in her career online, but but her most recent focus from easternblot.net, moving into shareyourside.com and some other um, some other websites. And the big thing there was just too many we called it an identity crisis in the episode, but you know, too many different groups coming through and different places to send them. Um, so that was the reason for the split. We talked a lot about this topic of audience, knowing who your audience is um, and writing for that audience. We talked about the, the deficit model as being outdated and really moving towards an engagement model for um, science communication and then maybe even online marketing as a whole. And that's something maybe, uh, maybe I'll brainstorm on and come up with some ideas in the future as well. We talked a little kind of side side wheel about uh, marketing your your ebook and uh, Ava's new book SciCom for researchers a guide for scientists who want to communicate their work to a new audience and we talked about having a website as an academic having a website as a researcher my recommendation was that that should be your own property and really be about you and then you need to work around whatever rules there are that that means for your university and we gave some tips and we'll pull those tips together into a cheat sheet at grabblogger.com slash 51 I, mean, I think we had eight or nine of them, so we'll we'll put those there. And then we we closed off by talking about what's next with Ava and what's next with ShareYourSci.com. I encourage you to go check that out, especially if you're a researcher looking to figure out how to share your science better with the world. And we talked more about how that's becoming more and more important for things like funding applications and that. Um, and it's really important if you want to start a business as a, a subject matter expert in your space as well. So that's it for this episode of the podcast. I hope you're continuing to like and enjoy these podcast episodes uh, definitely tag me at grab blogger and tag um, ava at share your sigh on twitter uh, rate and view this podcast if you like it in itunes and give it an honest review um, i read them all and we, we really love the feedback hope you have a great week ahead i'm looking forward to next week's episode of the grab blogger podcast mm-hmm.